It's 10.02 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters Down East is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about free trade, winners and losers in Maine. We'll talk about international trade policy, how it works, who sets the rules, and what it means for people in Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guest. Joining us in the studio is Kate DeLudio. Kate is the Principal Chief Research Officer and Co-Founder at 45 North, a strategic consulting firm. She is an applied researcher with 15 years of experience in economics and public policy. Prior to founding 45 North, she was Senior Research Associate at the University of Maine's Margaret Chase Smith Policy Center. She also served as Maine's State Economist from 2005 to 2009. Mrs. Deludio has served on Maine's Consensus Economic Forecasting Commission, on the Revenue Forecasting Committee, and the Advisory Board to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston's New England Public Policy Center. With Philip Trostel, she co-authored the 2016 Trade Policy Assessment prepared for the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission. She's a real expert. So welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show today. According to a quote from Benjamin Franklin, he said, no nation has ever been ruined by trade. Um, If you listen to some of the dialogue during the last presidential election, you might wonder if that was really true or not. So we're going to talk today about what is the history of international trade in the U.S. going back to our founding? What are the global trends that are affecting trade today? Is the U.S. still benefiting from global trade? What about Maine businesses and Maine workers? International trade, including exports and imports, supports almost 200,000 Maine jobs. That's more than one in five in our state. Since 2009, Maine jobs related to trade has increased over 25%, while overall job growth growth has been less than 1%. So almost all of the job growth that we had in Maine has come from trade. But it's not working for everyone, and trade policy was a central issue in last year's presidential election. So let's cast back a little bit, Kate. What is our history as a trading nation, as a trading state? After all, the Boston Tea Party was basically a tariff dispute, right? It was. Thank you, Ann. Um, I was interested to learn that when the country was first founded, so in 1789, each state had its own tariffs. Um, so it was a pretty unwieldy system. You had uh, kind of beggar thy neighbor policies of Massachusetts and New York and Connecticut, kind of each favoring their own industries. Um, and it wasn't good for commerce. So when they set up the new country, um, the states agreed voluntarily that they would give up the power to um, regulate trade with other states, and they would give that to the new federal government. Um and that has been this, the situation ever since. The young U.S. government um, did that. And so instead of um, taxing 
are regulating trade between the states, they turn to regulating imports and exports with other countries. And actually, tariffs uh, for many, many years uh, were the sole, almost the sole source of revenue for the federal government. Really? Yep. That was the case until the um, income tax in the early 20th century. Wow. Pretty long time. It was. It was. Um, But um, I think there was, you know, they, like Benjamin Franklin, I guess we're seeing that um, that hurt the country in some ways. And so over time, tariffs were falling. Um, Then there was a spike of protectionism right around the Great Depression where the government was trying to protect the struggling, um, you know, domestic companies. And that ended up backfiring, actually, because other countries um, imposed retaliatory tariffs and actually made the conditions worse both in the U.S. and in other countries. The Great Depression wasn't just a U.S. phenomenon. It was happening in other countries as well. And so um, in 1934, Congress kind of reversed course and gave the president the power to negotiate reciprocal trade agreements with other countries. And that has been the the case since then, that it's the, the president kind of overseeing these these trade agreements, and then the Congress approved them or not. Um, so say that last part again. And it was in the 1930s that yeah. Congre- Congress gave the president the power to negotiate international trade agreements. Yes. Whoa. Okay. Yep. Um, and so that has been the case ever since. And so um, trade started to liberalize. And then after World War II, um, it really accelerated because a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic um, attributed in some ways, World War II to the economic strife and the protectionism that had been going on before then. Um, And they hoped that by strengthening the economic ties between countries um, and raising economic conditions everywhere, they could guard against future wars. Um, And so that's when the um, roots of the World Trade Organization uh, took hold. It was called GATT at that time, a Global Agreement on Tariff and Trade. And that was the U.S. and some other European, um, Asian, and South American countries that started that right after World War II. Was that part of the Bretton Woods agreement? or I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was more about monetary policy, <laughs> um, but I, I don't know specifically how that, yep. how that connected. Um, so that was, uh, you know, it came after World War II and also during the Cold War, GATT uh, and then the WTO was a counterpoint to the Soviet bloc. Um, so throughout our history, trade has had an economic, uh, it had, it's had economic dimensions and also geopolitical dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, since the Cold War, um, the WTO has grown. Now Russia and almost all the former Soviet countries are part of it. China is now part of it. Um, and it includes um, 162 countries that, that cover about 90% of the world's population. So giving an example, who's not part of it? Um, uh, North Korea. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know about Cuba. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's kind of countries like that. Yep, yep. And so um, I, we were talking before the show started about the um, – really big dislocating impact it had when China entered the WTO. Talk a little yes. bit about that. Was a, when did that happen? Oh. Like 2000? Yeah, I under think Clinton. Was, I think, yeah, that sounds right. Right. Um, yes. So 
there's been a lot of talk about trade with China. Um, and one thing that's important to know is that we don't have a trade agreement with China. Mm. What we have is that we are both part of the World Trade Organization. And since we're part of that organization, we agree to treat China as we would any other country. Um, but when and China was actually uh, before China was admitted to the WTO, we still had normal trade relations with China. It's just that every year we would um, renew them. So there wasn't as much certainty as there was after they joined the WTO. Um, that certainty allowed um, more companies to um, invest in China and make longer-term decisions um, that have increased trade. Mm-hmm. So it is true that we... Um, you know, some analyses of what would happen when China joined the WTO were, were based on current levels of trade and what would happen if you lowered tariffs on the current amount of trade. I think um, what everyone underestimated is the new areas of trade that companies would discover um, and new, you know, new markets both at home and abroad. One thing that's, that's interesting about China is that um, while certainly um, – its admission to the WTO was, has been one of the, a big event in trade in the last few decades. Their development has also pushed um, how much they trade with the rest of the world. Um, decades ago, China was a very poor country. And um, to raise millions of people out of poverty, they made a very concerted effort um, over several decades to develop manufacturing um, they have five-year plans. They're now on their 13th five-year plan. Um, so so they are a force unto themselves. And um, certainly we, I think it, it was no one estimated how fast their development would occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly that has had a direct impact on um, certain groups of workers here in the U.S., yep. specifically lower-skilled workers um, that have not been able to compete, you know, and we, we have lost um, many, many, many jobs in manufacturing. I was um, talking to you earlier about the Freakonomics interview that I heard in January with David Otter from MIT, mm-hmm. who was talking about how the TPP wasn't going to be that bad, and although people had really been afraid of NAFTA, NAFTA hadn't really been that bad. It was the combination of automation and China's entry into the WTO that had dislocated so many American workers and how um, we hadn't really been able to predict that or offer those workers appropriate safety nets. Um, And it really has been that big. It has been. Um, And uh, last year... um Phil Trostel and I, as you mentioned, did a report for the legislature looking at the impact of trade. Um, part of the report is looking at the impact of trade um, and specifically NAFTA on Maine. And it's interesting when you look at you know a graph of how trade with Mexico and Canada has increased over that time, it's been a gradual increase. But what has really sharply increased is China, which mm. of course is not part of the, of the NAFTA agreement. Right. Um, and that has really impacted us. Another thing that's um, interesting is just all the forces of globalization that have impacted um, workers, especially in manufacturing. Um, by nature, it's much easier to trade goods than services. Yeah. You can't trade, you know, uh, import a haircut or um, someone to come, you know, fix your electrical work. You know, those there's there are some occupations and and, and services that 
are safer, I would say, um, although we're discovering more and more ways to trade them. But goods um, are easily traded. And so um, people who are producing goods are more uh, vulnerable to, to the forces uh, and competition from imports. Um, so when you, when you look at the big trade events over the last 50 years, how have main imports and exports shifted over that time? And we talk a lot about shoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one that has virtually disappeared from the main economy, right? What are some other it examples? Has, yes. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's about 97% of clo- uh, clothing and footwear is imported. Yep. Um, so it's not coming from Maine anymore. It's not coming from, you know, Appalachia. It's it's coming from, from outside. Um, but it's also opened up markets. I mean, 50 years ago, we weren't exporting lobsters or elvers or sea cucumbers True. to Asia. Yep. Um, so, um, you know, it's it's been, uh, there have been pluses and minuses for Maine. Certainly, by overall measures, we have grown. Um, whether you're looking at statewide measures of income or economic activity or employment, but the growth has been uneven across the state and within you know certain strata of the workforce. In- so, so can you t- tell which sectors have been hit the hardest and which certain- have benefited the most? Sure. Um, well, certainly manufacturing, I think, is is one we all know of. Um, since uh, we, we looked at what had happened in manufacturing a few decades after NAFTA, for instance, we saw that about a quarter of the layoffs um, were attributable to trade. And actually those workers were eligible for trade adjustment assistance. So you can really tell, kind of, you know, can pinpoint um, what was the result of trade. But the thing about manufacturing is that um, there's been a long-term decline in manufacturing beginning from the peak, which was at World War II, um, fully half of Maine workers were employed in manufacturing, and it has slowly declined till today. About I think about nine percent. Seriously? So, yes. So that decline started um, well before the jump in trade. You know, that started around the nineteen seventies, well before um, NAFTA. You know, or well before the rise of China. Is that where the role of automation comes in in those declining jobs? Yes. Yeah. That really is um, a big part of it. And today, the U. The the manufacturers that are left are hiring fewer but better skilled people. Um, they are very capital intensive operations and they're competing around the world, but they're not competing with, with manual labor. They're mm. competing with technology. Um, I recently heard the director of SAPI's Skowhegan Mill talk and he said they don't hire anyone directly out of high school anymore. So that's a big change. Yep. So the graduate from Skowhegan High School who might not really like school but is reliable and willing to work hard can't even get an entry-level job at the paper mill anymore. Yeah. And so that's a big change. Um, and that, uh, you know, it's not, I mean, it's related to trade in some ways, but really it's related to what they're actually doing and the equipment they're using um, in those high-tech operations. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, how things really work when it comes to negotiating these trade agreements. And what role, I mean, you said it's within the president's purview to negotiate these agreements. Does he appoint somebody specifically? Is this a congressional appointment? How does that work? There's a, a trade um, commission, a U.S. Uh, International Trade Commission. Um, and I, I wouldn't say I'm not an expert on this, um, but but that is part of the executive branch. Um, 
and they spend years negotiating these um, trade agreements. Uh, one thing in studying that I really gained respect for is just the arduous job of doing this. Um, one reason that that trade tr- negotiations have kind of stalled at the world trade level, world trade the level of the WTO, is that they're starting to get into such complex issues of intellectual property rights and um, cross-border data flows that it's really becoming pretty complicated. And for instance, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the last you know called the TPP, mm-hmm. uh, the last um, agreement that we negotiated that take took 10 years. So it was cross-administrations, right? It was not just Bush and not just Obama. It was, Mm -hmm. okay. So there's a lot of, um, you know, back and forth and concessions made on on all sides. Um, So it's a very, it's a a lengthy process. Mm -hmm. Do citizens have any opportunity to participate? I mean, these are mostly closed door negotiations, right? They are, um, and again, I'm not an expert on it. They, you can submit, um, uh, testimony, um, but it is kind of a, a closed door um, process in that um, it's it's kind of secretive. They kind of try out different arrangements and see how it works. Uh, the, the negotiators kind of try to try out different arrangements and then go back to their respective countries. They have commenters who might look at it. Um, they're not allowed to release it publicly. Um, I, I think. Um, part of that is just because of the complexity of these agreements and that if if they had to respond every time um, they tried out a different arrangement, I think they would spend all their time responding to public input. Not that we want to stifle public right, input, right. I think, but I think their strategy is to wait until the end because this might not even work for this other country. Let's just wait until we have an agreement that actually the countries agree on and then let's release Give it. it an up or down An vote. up or down vote. Right. I think it's just... Yeah. So did you read it, the TPP? No, I did not read the whole thing because it is massive. Tell me. Uh, I mean, um, I mean, it's thousands of pages, and the tariff schedule for the U.S. alone is 400 pages. Oh, my gosh. Which uh, we were talking before the show, I think, lends itself to um, the nature of the discussion around these trade agreements is that an ordinary citizen simply can't go and read it for themselves. Um, most of the information about the agreements is, is kind of filtered through interest groups on, on both sides of the debate. So it, I, I found it very um, challenging to find that. I would say the Congressional Research Service, which is a nonpartisan uh, like research office for Congress, um, I felt was the best um, mm-hmm. interpretation of it. They were very, very useful and very um, even. Wow. And so it's really hard for citizens to play a role, and they have to really rely on surrogates in a way to understand what these things mean and how they work. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it, during the negotiation process, because it's within a, the executive branch, the, the office of the president, I mean, some of the complaints I hear from people about them is that all the stakeholders are not necessarily equally represented, that mm-hmm. these things tend to favor corporate interests and that environmental interests or citizen interests or union interests may not be equally represented. Is that true? I, I think that's hard to say. I have to say I observed with the TVP that there were people unhappy on all sides. Uh-huh. Uh, so maybe <laughs> they might have been doing something right on some portions of it. Um, but the problem then is that you have no advocates. Yeah. Um, I, I don't feel like I can uh, – we found some from pretty startling inf- examples of just plain misinformation um, 
but then we've also found some very good analyses of it. Um, I would just advise people, as always, to just really carefully look at their sources um, and check, read, read things that they might not think they agree with it and see how it checks out. So on balance, would TPP have been good for Maine? I mean, it's probably a moot question at this point. Mm-hmm. But Well, we did um, do an analysis of it, and we found it would have a very slight neutral to positive impact on Maine in the long run. Um, and we we're talking about very small numbers. Um, maybe, I think it was about $100 per person in 2032. Oh, um, yeah. But... Um, but you know, that's what it came out to. And even that was based on an analysis um, by the U.S. International Trade Commission uh, for the U.S. economy. They always do an economic impact assessment of these trade agreements. Um, and they found similarly, you know, a, a neutral to slightly positive impact. One of the things that I hear about these, and I have no idea, how, like if I asked you how many trade agreements was the U.S. party to, like is that a lot? I think there's several dozen. I mean, the biggest one is the World Trade Organization, which is only one agreement, but it governs trade with 161 other countries. Mm-hmm. And then we have, I think I would say several dozen regional agreements. NAFTA and yes. something with the European Union, perhaps. We have them with a lot of countries. We've got them with Cambodia, South mm-hmm. Korea. Oh, uh, sometimes they're one on. Sometimes they're one on one. Yep. yep. And and so how are the how are disputes in these um, agreements arbitrated? Like, mm. if you have a complaint, what do you do? Well, in most agreements, there's something called um, ISDS, which is an investor state dispute settlement. This is uh, a process that actually I think originated with the U.S. Um, Early on when we were negotiating (coughs) agreements with other um, countries, U.S. companies, um, in some cases, we didn't trust the legal system in that country. We wanted some kind of guarantee that... um, that there would be a neutral kind of qualified arbitrator. And so um, they started setting up these um, agreements that create a tribunal when there's a dispute. Another motivation for this was was so that um, disputes between a country and a company wouldn't elevate to the level of a dispute between a country and a country. Yeah. You know, and, and worst case scenario, lead to some kind of military conflict. We just wanted to be between, you know, very clearly a company and the and the government. Um, that's a, a very strong point of contention um, around the TPP and other um, agreements. It, it used to be, I mean, it used to be more developed country or com- companies from developed countries bringing cases against. Um, countries uh, or developed uh, less developed countries. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing as trade increases, as companies in developed countries are becoming more sophisticated, um, they're being used in both directions. Um, to date, the date the U.S. has never lost one of those cases. Um, there's a couple pretty um, well-known cases of where um, U.S. environmental standards were were held up. Um, a Canadian company. Um, yeah, um, tried to question um, California's banning MTBE, you know, mm-hmm. the, the emissions. Um, they weren't allowed to do that. There's another case, a famous case of a mining company that challenged environmental laws. They didn't win. Um, but there, there is legitimate um, concern, you know, on all sides of this debate. But I think um, there's a question of, you know, these tribunals are the people serving on them um, are um, 
trade experts, you know, you know, you don't really know who they are. They're not publicly elected. Um, what is their background? You know, they're kind of chosen by the parties. And um, Europe and Canada, actually, in their new agreement, have created a different system that would have an independent tribunal with, I think, 15 judges elected by both uh, company uh, countries. Um, so they are kind of moving away from that. Mm-hmm. So it was certainly a point of contention with the TPP. Um, and it looks like something that I would, I would guess that future trade agreements will probably move away from that yeah. mechanism. Yeah. Because that was a concern that I heard about um, Maine's environmental regulations possibly being compromised under that. Um, We certainly would want to be cautious about something like that, I would think. Yeah. Yes. And like I said, no cases have been um, lost to date. But Mm -hmm. but when you look at the setup, you can certainly see how it could lead to that. And there was, you know, there were concerns. A lot of concern about that, yeah. Um, Interesting. So... um, you know, I sort of had a, a question about how f- these federal treaties and states' rights sort of interact, and it seems like the federal umbrella covers the states, and the states may be swept up against their will into some of these disputes, or is that not quite true? I don't know if that that's ever happened. Um, I do know that the Congressional Research Service was very clear when they were assessing the TPP that it wouldn't have affected any kind of um, purchasing, you mm-hmm. know, done at the state level or local level, which was a concern. Um, you know, certain Buy America provisions of federal grants or transportation projects, those were carved out and would have been safe. And yep. that, I know that was a concern. I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, basically, t- trade among the states is no barriers, no tariffs, except that we do have circumstances in which states are allowed to subsidize certain industries or underwrite certain practices and attract business to those, um, which if it were a cross-border issue would be a trade dispute in a way. But okay, never mind. Trade among the states is free and open. Um, Trade cross-borders is, you know, sometimes more and sometimes less free. And well, go ahead. No, Jump. it's true. Um, it's true. Um, I forget what I was say. Sorry, it's all right. I'll keep talking for a minute here. So, um, when we when we talk about how um, you know some of the opponents to some of these trade agreements have been unions and organized labor organizations, we talked about the environmental groups, and you mm-hmm. sort of got into what some of their concerns might be. But I mean, protecting U.S jobs by stemming the tide of global trade. Is that, can we really do that? Um, I think if we could have done it, we we missed the opportunity. Um, I think for better or worse, you know, if you look at Maine's economy now versus 20 or 30 years ago, it has undergone fundamental changes. We have lost tens of thousands of manufacturing jobs. We've also gained tens of thousands of service jobs, many more than we've lost. Um, and service jobs um, are not all bad. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a service job. I, I yeah. kind of like it. Um, about two-thirds of service jobs are well-paying. They're in business, um, healthcare, education, and they pay about what a, a production job would have been. About a third of service jobs are not well-paying. They pay about half of what other jobs pay, and they're in retail sales and food service. So that's, you know, that's fair to point out. Um 
But, but because we have lost so many manufacturing jobs and now we're at a point where um, the surviving manufacturers are very high tech, they're competing mm-hmm. globally, we won't be impacted by future increases in trade as we were in the past. We can't lose those jobs again because they're gone. So I think that how we will fare in the future is more about whether we will be able to harness the new opportunities created by globalization to grow, or are we just going to kind of have like, you know, just remain stagnant? Yep. I mean, I want to talk about the difference when we hear in this debate, the difference between free trade and fair trade. But it looks like we may be going to uh, a break here in a minute. So maybe we can save that question for when we when we come back from the break. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is free trade, winners and losers in Maine. And our guest is Kate DeLudio, economist, applied researcher, and trade expert. Uh, former Maine state economist, she co-authored the 2016 paper, Trade Policy Assessment Prepared for the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission. And we're going to come back to a further discussion with Kate right after a station break. And we'll take your listener calls at that time. 1-800-643-6273. I'm Amy Brown here with... Joel Mann, and we're going to give him an update because it right. really looks fantastic. Uh, this goal we set was for $12,000 by Saturday at 10 o'clock, and we're so happy to report that we're $947 on top of that. So we've gone Thank past you, our goal. We have one goal left, though. We have 45 new members, and we needed 100. So we're looking for new members, 55 of them. And as many as we can get between now and Saturday would be fantastic. And if you are going to be a new member, thinking about being a sustainer, it's really easy right. and it, it uh, works out so well for everybody. 1 800 643 6273. Democracy Forum. What right. a great program. Yeah, they, and in the last, I just wrote down some of the topics they've covered in the last few months. If you've caught this show, they uh, have covered fake news. Who can you trust? Two mains. Can we bridge the divide? Ballot questions in Maine, whose initiatives are they? Elections reflections, the civic mission of public education, privatizing public policy, is philanthropy good for democracy? All these great topics are covering trade and its impacts on Maine today. This kind of radio is made possible with your support. And new members, if you're counting on the older members to do it, I mean, they do come through time after time, but we really need new members here helping out as well. If you listen to and appreciate independent media, if you're one of those people who doesn't like media that's controlled by corporations, just chip in $5 a month. You can become a sustaining member and provide a great source of income for WERU. You can call locally 469-6600 or 1-800-643-6273. When our community can have such great dialogue that Democracy Forum brings you, and the community also funds that by contributing to uh, community radio where we have a forum for this type of uh, we're so lucky to have a place to talk and to uh, exchange ideas and when you support that you're supporting community at its best absolutely 1-800-643-6273 we have a a book that we're going to be giving away at the end of democracy now we'll do it during probably the first break the first break now so part way in everybody who has uh Pledge during the uh, spoken word programs, 10 o'clock and the 4 to 6 block. 
We'll go into a drawing for the hidden life of trees, what they feel and how they communicate. Discoveries from a second world. Looks very, very interesting. So uh, there's a little incentive for you maybe to chip in. Right. And we're going to give the phone number one more time before we sign off. Anne is going to take back over, and she will give the number to call in for the call-in show. These are two separate numbers. So if you call in to with questions for the guests, that will be a separate number. But if you want to call in and make a pledge, which we know you do, please call now at 469-6600 or... 469 469- I'm sorry, 1-800-643-6273. Oh, Perry has something for us. All right, awesome. And it's Eleanor and Clint in Sullivan. Thank you. All right, public affairs. And I'm sure Ann thinks you too. Particularly enjoys Friday night jazz and on the wing. Awesome. All right, an all-around all right. guy. All right, so the numbers are 469-6600 or 1-800-643-6273, and we will be turning it back over to the studio. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, everybody. Uh, well, welcome back to the Democracy Forum. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest this morning is Kate Deludio, economist, applied research and trade expert, a former Maine state economist. And we're going to be talking free trade, winners and losers in Maine. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join the conversation. You can call with your question or comment at 866-625-9378, or if you're local, dial 469-0500. We're going to have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, take your answer off the line so others can join. And don't wait till the last minute to make your call. Get your call in early. Keep the conversation going. So, Kate, we were talking about the difference between free trade and fair trade. What do people mean when they say free trade versus fair trade? Well, what, as I understand it, I mean, free trade, uh, as we were saying, is kind of like trade between the states, not regulated. That's very rare. Even the most liberal countries uh, regulate trade for food safety, contraband, you know, other issues. So there's really no really free free trade um, in the world. Fair trade, um, I believe, refers to uh, thinking about the labor conditions and the environmental conditions and the regulatory environment of producers in other countries, how are they making these goods? Uh, what conditions are their workers experiencing? Um, and, and you know, how does that compare to U.S. standards? Like Nike and the big shoe controversy they had for a while there about labor conditions offshore. Yes. We have a caller on the line. It's David from Brooklyn. Go ahead, David. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for the chance uh, and thanks for the show. Um I'm just it was reminded as I was listening on the phone that we did have a, a little uh, bout here locally with uh, free trade uh, to do with our uh, local uh, production of milk, you know, that came down around that, where our uh, freedom to trade, to spend our money, was uh, uh, legislated by people who were uh, concerned that we wouldn't know enough to look out for our own safety. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, to me, that's a great shame. Uh, I'm I, I'm a little uh, uh, I'm interested by uh, your dismissal of the uh, the jobs which we used to have in this state due to our uh, productive capacity, our workers, uh, as uh, being just plain gone, and there's nothing we can do about that, and we have to. Uh, 
turn uh, toward the future and uh, uh, milk the computers or something. Uh, I don't. I don't agree that those jobs are just plain gone. I think they can be got back, and I think that the reason they're just plain gone is that the 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 trade agreements, which have chased them away, have been controlled not by workers but by CEOs and corporation heads who are interested primarily in making a profit and could care less about full or half employment just so it saves some money. Uh, I think if we could turn this around to the point where our trade policies were uh, either non-existent or were determined by the uh, consumer uh, themselves, uh, we would have quite a different situation. I, I have a, a, a fantastical, but not that unrealistical, uh, I think, uh, pl- pro- project whereby all the inhabitants of the state of Maine would make a, a, a pact amongst themselves, which could be uh, 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 quantified in a vote uh, to only buy Maine-made uh, merchandise. I'm going to let our then, let our guest comment on that, Matt. Thank you for your call. We got okay. Thank you very Thanks much. Yep. Go ahead, Kate. Well, I think Matt brought up um, a lot of, of uh, views that I've certainly heard um, and a desire to uh, kind of hold on to opportunities. You know, um, you know, I'm a mom, and I certainly want as many opportunities for my sons as I've had. And I think sometimes when we see a loss of those opportunities, especially employment and opportunities, the the instinct is to try to um, to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the difficulty in this case is that um, trade agreements have only resulted in a, a small portion of the the change in in workforce demand that we're seeing. Um, a lot of it is automation, and if there's, you know, unless we're also going to give up all our technology, um, then we're even if we, even if we stopped all these trade agreements, we wouldn't go back to where we were before. Right. So that's just something that's it's hard to grapple with, but but is a reality of where we are, unfortunately. I want to come back to this buy local thing, but we I said that was Matt. That wasn't Matt. That was David. Matt is still <laughs> on the line, and he has a question. So I'm going to turn it over to Matt, and I'll come back to my question for you later. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, how are you? Good. Uh, I was wondering, uh, I'm a ground fisherman, codfish, pollock, haddock, hake, stuff like that mostly, and I see this NAFTA and GATT, when that NAFTA went through, was when our fish prices really never got caught up with the rest of the world. And I think the, uh, you know, you go into Hannaford and you see haddock that's been caught in Russia, processed in China, gets sold in America, and they can sell it cheaper than... I can bring it into the dock and pour Clyde, whack it up and sell it out of the boat or sell it in the store. I just was wondering if these uh, NAFTA and GATT ever got re-engineered by the geniuses that be in the White House, if this was going to change anything in the fishing industry, because it's very difficult to compete with uh, with uh, fish caught from other places, other countries, and shipped in here. So I'll take my answer off here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Go ahead, Kate. Yeah, I think Matt is raising a very good point. Um, the general consensus among economists is that yeah, trade benefits society as a whole, but the losses are concentrated, um, and you know, for the people who f- experience them, that's devastating. Um, so the focus uh, for many economists has been is how do you compensate those people um, versus just 
cutting off the the benefits to everyone else. And that's a hard balance. Yeah. And I know when I go to the supermarket, I would rather buy fish Mm -hmm. from the USA than fish from Shanghai. So I make that choice and I pay a premium for that perhaps. But um, that sort of gets back to David's question about buy local, sell local, and whether schemes like that um, have any promise. I sometimes wonder, you know, buy local sounds great, but if everybody did that, who would buy Maine's exports and would we really come out ahead? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a complex issue. I mean, certainly that, um, you know, one of the the benefits of trade, for better or worse, is that it lowers consumer prices. Um, the estimate is about, on average, about 8%, but it's much lower, uh, much higher savings for low-income households, which spend a higher portion of their income on food and clothing. I mean, so if you go into a Walmart, you see imports from all over the world. And the reality is that um, low-income families can afford a lot more than they otherwise would without trade. And for the rest of us, um, trade frees up money for us to spend elsewhere, to go out to dinner, to go to a farmer's market, to buy that more expensive fish. So it's a very complex issue. Is Maine an exporter? Well, we don't know. So you, you can get data on exports, but you can't get data on state imports because imports come into the U.S. to ports, uh, which might be Portland, but it might be Boston or New York. And um, then they're put on rails or trucks and transported to all of the states. So you, the U.S. doesn't track that. And we don't know um, how many, you know, how many in ex- mm-hmm. imports are coming into Maine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the question about NAFTA and GATT and the effect on ground fish, I mean, that wasn't actually a trade barrier. That was a competitive issue based yeah. purely on price, right? Yes. I mean, I'm not an expert in that field, but I know, you know, if you look at um, other fisheries like lobster, like elvers or or sea cucumbers, I was mentioning before, you know, we have benefited um, from trade agreements that have opened up new markets for us in those industries. So it's it's, uh, multidimensional. Well, it's interesting because we were just reading this morning about the European Union getting ready to lift tariffs on Canadian lobsters, which... U.S. lobstermen fear is going to make them less competitive for exports to the EU. So, I mean, that's very complicated, isn't it? It is. And one of the, the, um, some people say, missed opportunity with the TPP was that it was a first agreement with Japan, um, which is a large market, loves seafood. Um, You know, that is not happening now, as of right now. And, but they are negotiating other agreements with the EU and with Australia. You know, so um, we're trying to figure out how we want to relate to the rest of the world, but the rest of the world is also changing its relationship to each other. And if we're not part of it, then we're, you know, what what, what does that mean then? Mm-hmm. Um, we have another question, uh, but before I put her on, let me remind you, this is the Democracy Forum, and we are taking your questions or comments right now. You can dial toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. We're talking about Free Trade, Winners and Losers in Maine with our guest today, Kate DeLudio. So, Beattie, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Beattie from Camden, you're on the air. Yeah, I've been very disturbed about the whole free trade treaty thing for a long time for environmental and human rights reasons. Um, I think it's a backdoor deregulation ploy, even though increasing trade is viewed as the way to you know, create peace, not make war. I mean, that's kind of what happened after World War II. 
I really don't think it's being used that way. Um, it may lower consumer prices. I'm sure it does, and that that increases consumption. Uh, we hear the voice of labor uh, protesting the free trade agreements because of a past loss of jobs, and now people are saying, well, it's going to be mechanization that's going to get rid of the jobs, not the uh, losing them the way we did. But the whole thing, my point is, there aren't measurements of environmental effects or human rights effects of these trade agreements. Nobody goes out and really looks at what's going to happen. You know, are we going to displace uh, enormous number of Mexican farmers who grew corn so Cargill can, can sell corn to Mexico, that kind of thing, deforestation. Um, and the environmental things are getting even worse because trade may lower, lower prices, this kind of trade, but trade takes up a lot of energy and the higher consumption with the low prices is an environmental thing. Uh, so environmental climate and uh, human rights effects of trade need to be measured. And when the suits are brought, the um, ISDS system of secret arbitration, which is a corporate way of doing things, you sign away your rights when you get make a contract with a corporation, and they do it internationally too this way. Um, why can't countries sue corporations for what happens? Or local entities like communities lose something they should be able to sue the corporations i i think the whole system is really dangerous thank you so much for your comment bd i I mean this point about whether all these stakeholders are at the table and are all equally represented and whether all the interests are being covered in these agreements is a great question it is um on the environmental issue um i want to bring up one point of light, perhaps, that with regarding the relationship between trade and the environment. Um, a lot of environmental agreements right now, there's no enforcement mechanism. And the point has been made that if we actually tied trade agreements to environmental standards, you would then have an enforcement mechanism, which right now you do not have. So although you know, we need to compare what we have right now um, to what we could have, not I mean, we have no leverage without some kind of agreement. Yeah. Um, and the same goes for labor standards. Um, in the tr- in the the U.S.'s agreement with Cambodia, nineteen ninety nine, we actually tied labor standards to it, so that they got quota bonuses if they improved labor standards, and they did. They worked to meet them, and there was an independent monitor. Um, and when the time period was over, they actually voluntarily continued the program because Cambodian manufacturers felt like it gave them an edge that corporations who chose to locate there could feel comfortable that they you know, had good labor standards, good pay um, by local standards, and they weren't going to you know, get surprised with some PR nightmare. Um, so trade agreements can be a mechanism for accomplishing other goals. Are other countries doing that better than we are? Um, well, for better or worse, the TPP had a lot of novel components um, that we w- worked very hard to get into the agreement. Um, I'm not as familiar with, like, say, Canadian or, or EU agreements. My guess is that they are probably working for the same things. My guess is that agreements um, driven by China will not, for instance, include protections for unions, mm-hmm. things like that. 
you know, so um, when we are at the table, we have a lot of power just because we are a huge consumer and um, companies want to trade with us. Um, and so we can force some, some of those concessions. So what can citizens do? I mean, we've got a lot more topics here and I've got a lot more things I'd like to ask you. But, you know, if you're somebody who holds BD's perspective and you really want these trade agreements to be negotiated, considering human rights, environmental rights, and labor standards, what leverage do citizens have to bring to bear on these agreements to make sure they're negotiated with those considerations in mind? Um, I would say your your federal representative, your, you know, your senators, your congresspeople. Um, and I would say I think it's really important to become as educated as we can be on these agreements. Um, they are complex, but I would say there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, so I would urge people to, to read about it. Um, it's hard. And we it had, is hard. We had the program, um, as you heard at the break, about fake news. And, you know, to be well-informed on some of these subjects really requires you reading outside your bubble. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find trusted and balanced sources of assessment for some of these things. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. We've got time for a couple more listener calls. We're talking this morning with our guest, Kate Deludio, who's an economist and applied researcher on uh, the topic of free trade, winners and losers in Maine. If you have a question or comment, you can still join our conversation by calling 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. I mean, these trade agreements between the U.S. and many other countries and so many of them, and you were saying about the tariffs alone, 400 pages, like if you're a Maine business person who wants to start up an export to another country, What do you have to do? I mean, how hard is that? Well, my first call would be to the Maine International Trade Commission because I personally don't know. But that is a group um, that focuses solely on helping Maine businesses um, export to other countries. They arrange trade uh, mission, trade trade trips. Um, They host. foreign companies, you know, here helping them make connections. So that's a a public-private partnership um, that uh, does a great job trying to help main businesses build those markets. I believe they have a big trade show coming up on Thursday next week. So if you're interested in finding out more about the um, Maine International Trade Commission, look for their conference next Thursday. I think that's the 25th. Um, what, What role does the Maine Citizen Trade Commission play that is a group um, that was formed by the legislature. It includes some legislators and some um, representatives from all sectors of, of the economy. Um, they're kind of a standing group that monitors trade issues and communicates um, with our representatives, you know, at the federal level, but when they have concerns um, that's what I observed. So this is a group that was convened by the Maine State Legislature, mm-hmm. studies trade issues, and your TPP paper was written for them yes. as a way to help them communicate, not in, so much in terms of state law, but in terms of Maine interests to the federal delegation. Did I get that right? Yes. And, you know, to, um, as far as I understand, um, to, you know, if there are issues that they they think are going to specifically harm Maine, whether it's a Maine, um, you, you know, product or whether it's Maine laws that might conflict. Um, they're kind of the 
the arbitrator of that there. Yep. And are you uh, familiar with the Maine Fair Trade Campaign? I think that's another resource that people should be aware of. I'm familiar with them. I mean, there are a lot of groups, uh, very active groups in Maine um, that are really you know, knowledgeable on these issues and look out for kind of labor and environmental concerns. So those are three um, organizations or groups that people can turn to for help and advice, perhaps on some of these these contracts. Um, so what trade barriers are out there right now for Maine products? Like if you're trying to export mm-hmm. uh, wood, crustaceans, I mean, are yeah. people facing tariffs in importing to other countries? There certainly are tariffs on um, certain main goods. Um, I'm familiar with the TPP region. Um, There are tariffs on main blueberries, main potatoes, main lobsters. Um, You know, some, it really depends on the country, whether that's a barrier or not. If it's a three or 5% tariff, you know, that might be enough that just the the currency exchange rate is going to be more important. But um, Japan has some pretty high agricultural tariffs. Um, we did see that in uh, with our agreement with South Korea, um, they lowered a lobster tariff and that, you know, the market really grew really? after that. Yeah. So there are specific cases where, you know, if there are high tariffs of, you know, up 30 or 40 percent on a product that is prohibitive. Um I know I know that the lobster industry, you know, commented on the TPP and that I mean their hope was that um you know maybe by lowering barriers to say Japan, you know that lobster, you know the market might have opened up there but I mean they're having a great success uh, internationally right now even without that. Yeah, but you know concern over this EU tariff and the competition mm-hmm. with Canada is certainly a factor in that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting to run out of time this morning, Kate. Thank you so much for being on. Um, I want to give you a chance to make any mm-hmm. parting comments here. I mean, again, this is about how can citizens keep informed? How can they express their views? How can they have a voice in um, in trade policy and what advice would you give? Well, this is one general comment. First, thank you very much for, for having me and for having such a thoughtful discussion about trade. I think that's really important. Um, when I think about this issue, um, as, as I've said, I think as difficult as some of the transitions that Maine has gone through have been, I, I think, you know, I, I look at where we are now and what will we need to really to prosper. And just I'll put in one little plug for a bill that I've been interested in. Um, it's a bill to create a long-range economic plan for Maine. It's LG367, and it would create um, empower the, the Maine Economic Growth Council um, with some resources to do that. That's an existing group um, that does an annual report card on Maine's economy. It's a mix of businesses and research groups, uh, some government folks. Um, their idea is that, you know, we're never going to excel if we don't have a plan. As I mentioned before, China's on its 13th plan. India's on its 12th five-year plan. What is our plan? Um, and to have a plan that really is long-range, um, that doesn't just kind of come and go with whoever happens to be in office. Um, so this group um, is 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 advocating that. I know the, the BDN and the Portland Press Herald have come out in favor of it. Um, and I think it would be a great investment for Maine. I look at what some other states have done. You know, it's not just 
communist countries that come up with these plans, but North Carolina with the Research Triangle, which now has 60,000 yep. jobs. You know, that was started in the 1950s. So a long-range plan for Maine would be um, good. Would be good. Thank you so much, Kate. We are out of time. Um, thanks to our guest this morning, Kate Deludio, economist, applied researcher, and trade expert. Um, and uh, to Amy Brown, who was our engineer this morning. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUS-FM. Thanks to our listeners and to those who called in. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. Email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Uh, We'll be continuing this conversation on trade in Maine with a live panel discussion on Wednesday, May 24th, beginning at 5.30 p.m. at Pat's Pizza in Ellsworth. If you're in the area, please join us there. Otherwise, we'll see you here next month when our topics will be sort of a continuation of this. We'll be talking about jobs in Maine. What's the future? Um, We'll see you here next month. Thanks a lot. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a mid-